Well, good morning. Good to be with you guys again today. We're going to be looking at a few different passages of Scripture today, and so have your Bibles ready, have your thumbs ready, and if you need a Bible, we do have a couple more um, back there for you to grab. We really are trying to get people to have their Bibles with them in church and flip along and maybe take a little note or two, make a little highlight, and, uh, and so we, we want to do that. One reason why I want you to do that, this is a very strategic kind of reason, you guys know Pastor Ryan spoke um, today before prayer that Christy's mother passed away this week, right? And I had a phone call with Christy um, this morning, and she said one of the things that she now treasures is her mom's Bible, which she now has. And I made an agreement with Christy. I said, I have my mother's, who my mother passed away, and I have her Bible, and and I preach from my mother's Bible every Mother's Day, so I have an agreement with Christy that next Mother's Day I will preach from my mother's Bible and she will have her mother's Bible with her. And um, her mother also left a prayer journal. And I, my mother left me a prayer journal. My mom went through the Psalms and just wrote these different notes down as she wrote down the Psalm and then her prayer, Psalm and then her prayer. And I have, those are treasures. Now, if you just have your phone on you, I don't, I guess maybe you'll leave your phone to your children or grandchildren. I don't know. My father-in-law had so many Bibles <laughs> that I, all the grandkids can get one, <laughs> right? Think about that, you know? And so Bibles are very important. They're where we connect with God and where we grow, spirit to spirit, heart to heart with the Lord. And I know that technology, there's Bibles stuff everywhere, and, and use those, make use of those, but, but make sure you got one of these. That's not proper English, I know, but make sure you got one of these, all right? Well, that's my sales pitch today for a Bible, but we're going to start a new series this morning called A Change of Mind. A Change of Mind. It's interesting that we celebrate now today what is called the Day of Pentecost. I hope you knew that. That's where we're at on the church calendar. You understand when Christmas is. You understand when Easter is. Well, 50 days after Jesus, his death and resurrection, we have what is called the Day of Pentecost. Now, if you were a first century Jew, this Day of Pentecost would have been like most others for you, because what it is, is it's the 50 days after Passover. Passover, the Jewish people, would celebrate their freedom from the nation of Egypt on the night when the angel of death passed over, is, over Egypt, and if the blood of the Lamb was po posted on the door, there signified that they were God's people, and the angel of death passed over them, sparing them and their children." So that's why they call it the Passover. And they would have a big Passover feast and celebration of their freedom and of God bringing them their freedom, which birthed their nation. And then 50 days after that Passover celebration, their freedom celebration, they would celebrate Pentecost 50 days later. They would celebrate that in the beginning of the harvest season. So they had their freedom and they had their food amazing, right? And that, that's, that's kind of what, what, what we wanted. And we as Americans, we can kind of jive with that. We can connect with that and say we have our freedom and our food. And so they were celebrating their freedom by the blood of the Lamb, being freed from the nation of Egypt. They were celebrating the fact that God had provided once again food and they can go out into the fields and they can reap in a harvest and that they would be sustained. Now, the first century Jew also understood 
that if they understood prophecy and they understood symbolism and that God often did things in the natural world to signify what he would do in the spiritual world, and they began to believe that there would come a Messiah, and the Messiah would be called the Lamb of God, and that when the Messiah came, he would bring freedom like that, or that which was foreshadowed in the freedom from Egypt. So when the Messiah come, he would give their nation freedom once again, and that the Messiah would then we would be saved by his blood, and at the beginning of that, there would be a whole new harvest. So this starts to unfold all throughout Jesus' ministry as John refers to him at his baptism, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, and all in that part of the world they would understand, and they would begin to grow and begin to grapple with how would Jesus be fulfilling all of these promises and prophecies. And then once Jesus died, they felt like everything had gone away, like everything was just destroyed, they had lost all hope, but three days later, when when Jesus raised from the dead, they began to put things back together again and say, wait a minute. Maybe he was right after all. And then 50 days later, as they gathered together in Jerusalem from all over the world, the Holy Spirit is prophesied in the book of Joel. The Holy Spirit fell on the church and the harvest of souls began. And we as now 21st century Christians look back on this day, the day of Pentecost, as the day that the church was birthed, on the day that the harvest of souls begun, on the day that the people of God were filled with the Spirit of God to the, do the amazing work of God. Now in Acts chapter 2, when this unfolded for the first time, Peter, as classic Peter would do, stood up and began to open his mouth and say all kinds of things. But this time he wasn't sticking his foot in his mouth like he had done throughout the gospel stories. This time what Peter was doing was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Not his own selfishness, not his own perspective, not his own desires of what the Messiah or Jesus should do. Because we all have that, right? We all have all these ideas, well God, you should be doing this. And we sometimes say stuff and we put our foot in our mouth so much. Well, this time when Peter began to exercise that same boldness that he had always had, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit and he gave this magnificent message. You can read about it in Acts chapter 2. He gave this magnificent message that retraced the history of Israel leading up to the time of Jesus. And then he speaks about how the people rejected Jesus and he died on the cross and that he rose on the third, grave on the third day. And he said, what if you're witnessing today has been prophesied by the prophet Joel. What you're witnessing today is what God had promised many, many, many years ago. And what the people were hearing, they were hearing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ in their own language by people that didn't know their language. Because people from all over the world had showed up in Jerusalem, people that were now God followers. They were proselytes. They were people that, had, that were born in other nations but became Jewish religiously. They were people that began to follow God based upon the promises of God and the hope that God was given. And when they came and they started hearing the gospel in their own language, they were really thrown off to the point where they thought the people were drunk. That was the only explanation because this was so bizarre. It was so out of the ordinary that they were thinking, you, these people must be drunk. And then people, Peter stood up and said, oh, no, no, they're not drunk. They're full of the Holy Spirit. And Peter delivered that wonderful message. And the response to that wonderful message was, what do we do? If they're not drunk, and this is what God has prophesied for all these years, and this is God is finally moving, and this is the Spirit of God overflowing in this place, what do we do? Because that seems to be the question, right? 
When God moves in powerful ways, or when we need God to move in powerful ways because things are going in the exact opposite direction that we would choose for them to do, when life gets kind of crazy, life gets kind of where we didn't expect it to be, we often respond with this question, what are we supposed to do? Well, when they were confronted by the truth, and they asked that question, what are we supposed to do? The response by Peter was to change your mind. Oh, the biblical word that you read is repent. But that word literally means change the way you think. Change your mind. So when all those people came, and they were Jews because of the promises of God, and because of the hope that was in God, and that they had come and that they had finally heard the message in their own language, and they were confronted by the Holy Spirit, they were, what do we do? Peter said, change your mind. You need to start thinking differently. So on this day of Pentecost in 2022, I think somehow we've gotten to a place where we're no longer asking that question in the right way. In the first century, people took it upon themselves. What do I do? And when you ask that that question, what should I do? It's a sign that you're kind of owning the situation, right? It's a sign that you're taking responsibility for yourself. Notice they weren't, there wasn't any blame going on. It wasn't, oh, well, it's because those people or them or her or him. It wasn't any of that. It was, oh, no, they, the Bible says that they were cut to the heart. What do I do? Are you asking today, what do I do? Or are you asking and telling other people what they should do? Are you full of suggestions? (laughs) Or are you asking God, what do I do? Well, if you're looking at your world today, and you're looking at the different things that are addressed, that were being addressed, and the different struggles that we have, I want to invite you to ask that question, what do I do? Typically, it's going to involve some sort of change in the way that you're thinking, right? And so I want to talk to you guys about that, but first this morning, I want to settle in in this message number one, mercy for change. Because sometimes I think when we look at the world and then we start looking at ourselves, and we start seeing things in ourselves that need to be addressed. We hold the mirror up, or better than the mirror, the Bible. We hold the Bible up to our life, and we start looking, and we're reading, and we're coming to church, and we're hearing, and we're confronted by truth, and then we notice, oh no, maybe I haven't been thinking right about some things. Maybe I've had some things wrong. Maybe I've somehow gotten off track from the way that I should be thinking about some things in the world. I want you to know that there's mercy for change. I want you to know that when you look at the Bible and when you look at the world and God's Spirit confronts you and He convicts your heart and He tells you that you need to do some changing and that you're thinking incorrectly about some things and you've got some life direction that isn't going towards Jesus, it's actually going away from Jesus, I want you to know when you feel the the, um, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I want you to listen to the voice that says there's mercy for change. Because as we have the Holy Spirit moving in our world and moving in our lives on this day of Pentecost, we think mostly about that. We do have another side. We do have the one that's called the tempter. 
the liar, the evil one, the wicked one. Some people know him as Satan or the devil or Lucifer or the enemy. So as the Spirit of God is moving, there is also the opposite at work in the world. In fact, he's called the principality of the air, of here. And so he's at work. And what he will tell you, when you get really convicted about something, Satan moves in and tells you that you're not worthy to change. That you've made too big of a mistake. That your life has so devalued you that there's really no more mercy for change. There's just damnation. But I want you to know today that no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what mistakes you've made, how far you've gone in a certain direction, that there is mercy available for change. And when we think about mercy for change, I want you to know this. God's loving mercy, this is the main point of this morning's message, God's loving mercy is not tolerance, but it is an opportunity for repentance. I've already explained to you some ways around that, that Satan moves in that, but let me tell you how our culture moves. And the argument is, is this just humanity at work? Is it God at work? Or would it be Satan at work? Yes to all of it. <laughs> yes to all of it. Because sometimes when you and I are confronted by things that we believe are wrong or unhelpful, we have to kind of look and, and, and kind of decipher which way we should go by investigating the scriptures, right? So we're digging through the scriptures, and sometimes things that we thought were right were actually wrong, right? And so we need some correction. Sometimes some things that we thought were uh, wrong, they're actually right, and we need some correction. So you and I are always kind of like that bowling ball going down the lane, and the Bible's these bumpers, if you bowl like me. You end up in the gutter, but we put the little bumpers up, and it's like, and we're like corrected, and eventually we're going to get down the lane. Now, I don't know about you, but I wish I had a straight path, you know, down the lane, but my life, I'm, oh, shoot, should I go over here? No, no, don't go back over there. Okay, and it's like this. I play golf the same way. I, actually, I quit playing golf, but when I tried to play golf, I used to play army golf, left, right, left, right, army golf, and so we did all that. But there's a pattern that I'm noticing in the world as you and I are trying to figure this out. Sometimes saying, I was wrong, and I thought that was wrong, but I guess it's good, and no, I thought that was good, but now it's bad, and, and there's just this mass confusion going on, right? One of the patterns that's taking place in the world is this, when we know that something is wrong, right? Or that something, yeah, let's, let's stick with that one. So we know something is wrong, I shouldn't be doing this, I shouldn't be doing A, okay? What happens is, A is bad, and we say, this is, this is bad, like eating avocados is, is, is bad. Okay, so that's, that's for me, just as an example. So you, you, <laughs> eating avocados is bad for me, and I've got a story for you in a little bit with that. But anyway, um, eating avocados for me is, is bad. So we have this. Now, there might come a time in my life when I go, eating avocados is bad. I don't do that. That's bad for me. It'll make me vomit instantaneously. Uh, it would just be horrible. Can't do that. But then I get myself in a situation, maybe a social situation. Maybe I'm at one of your homes, and you serve me something with avocado mixed in it. I'm in a situation where I must tolerate you. 
I have to eat what you put before me. I have to tolerate this and I have to eat this and I can't tell you anything about it. I can't say, what are you thinking putting avocado in it? What are you trying to do? Make me sick? You make me ill? What are you doing? I have to tolerate you. Which toleration means, by the definition of the word, I think what you just did was wrong, but I'm not going to do anything to you about it. I'm not going to throw my food at you. I'm not going to get up and walk out. I'm going to eat the food, pray to the Lord Jesus that it stays down, and then go home and like eat ice cream and the whole carton and to make myself, and not Tom Brady's avocado ice cream either. That dude's loony. He's loony. I don't eat whatever he eats. But so I tolerated that. But see, something else, once a, once a society begins to tolerate something, you say, okay, well, it's not good, but we're going to leave it there. It's not good. We're not going to make it illegal. We're not going to kick you out. We're not going to tell you anything. It was just, we're going to tolerate that. I don't like that. I think that's wrong to tolerate that. But then what moves forward, we go from tolerating to celebrating. Celebrating. Because after a culture will tolerate something for so long, then enough people are, oh, okay, nothing bad's happening to me when I do this. I'm going to keep serving avocado to the pastor. This is just amazing. And he never rejects this. He gobbles this stuff up, and he, he must like it. It's, this must be wonderful. I'm going to keep, and everybody invites me over to their house, and they keep serving me avocado, and I'm going, well, what's going on? And they're celebrating this, and they're excited about it, and they're announcing this, and they're talking about it all throughout the church. All social media is filled with how excited the church is because the church is giving the pastor avocado. And this is just a party, and this is great. Meanwhile, I'm going, oh, oh, no. Well, then in society, what we do with things after we've tolerated them for, us, for maybe some years or some decades, we then start to celebrate that, but then we move beyond celebration to demanding. You will eat this avocado. Oh, shoot. And if you don't eat this avocado, you must hate me. Why are you rejecting me? You won't eat this avocado. You will eat this avocado. And in fact, everybody will eat it and everybody will like it. And if you don't, you're going to be cast out. That's how society behaves with a number of things. In the church, out of the church, a mix of the two. I'm more concerned with inside the church. But in our world, that's the progression. Tolerate, celebrate, demand. And we're doing that with all sorts of, Alice, you're right. You agree with me, see? All throughout our world, that's what we're doing. We're doing it in the church. And the scariest thing about the church is we use the Bible to do it. Wrongly use the Bible to do it interesting isn't it so just watch that pattern look in the scriptures see that pattern in your own world in your own life in your own family tolerate celebrate demand there it is but the word of god is something different the word of god is we're not going to tolerate celebrate demand we're going to repent and there's grace and mercy to repent now they're talking to each other Amen. That's my amen corner on both sides. I got... But see, something happened in David that I want to take you to Psalm 51 is the first place we're going to go. Because when David repented of his sin with Bathsheba, he cried out for mercy. 
This is where we begin to understand that there's mercy for change. In this verse, what happens is, David thought he had got away with it, but the prophet Nathan came along and revealed his sin to him. And then David, once he is convicted by the Holy Spirit, David says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to the abundance of mercy, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly with my, from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my sin, and my sin is ever before me. Whew, what a response. May that be all of our responses. When something has come into our world and we look at the scriptures and we look at our life and the Holy Spirit is moving in our life and convicting us of our sin and we're saying, what do I do? The answer to what do I do when I'm under the conviction of the Holy Spirit is not tolerate, celebrate, demand. It's repent. It's repent. But you know how a Christian moves into this idea of tolerance? Oh, it's, 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 I'm not saved by works, so this is okay. I can still go to heaven and do this, so it's, it's okay. Hmm. And so we tolerate it in ourselves. But then, maybe we find two or three other people that do the same thing, and we start to feel kind of good about it. We celebrate it a little bit behind the scenes. Pastors would do it something like this. Oh, we would never tell our congregation, but if we're involved with things that we know are wrong, and we're just going to tolerate it in our life, that's okay, I'm not saved by works, I'm saved by grace, God's merciful, then I might find another pastor that does the same thing. And then we might find another one, and we just kind of celebrate that together. We keep it to ourselves, we just kind of, oh, you didn't know pastors did that? Oh, we're good at that. And it destroys churches, and it destroys ministries. And it's a black mark on everything the gospel is trying to do. So if I was speaking to a group of pastors today, I would ask you, what are you secretly celebrating with other ministers? Maybe we should repent and not tolerate, celebrate demand. I speak for pastors. Maybe you look amongst yourselves and say, how do you do that? I'll leave that to you. But I suggest to follow David's command. Notice David has three things that begins with turn. The first one, turn towards God by relying on his love producing mercy. See, he loves you so he's going to produce mercy for you. He loves you so he's going to allow you to repent. He loves you so he's going to call you to change your mind. Because that's what we do with our children, right? That's what, that's what we do in any kind of area of maturity or growth. Growth and maturity in any area calls for a change of mind. With your career path, same thing. You entered a career path with certain expectations, with certain ideas, and as you move forward in the career path, you probably changed your mind about some things. You've probably developed a more mature understanding of what that is. Whether you're, you know, working in the marketplace, you're a salesperson, you're a teacher, an academic, you're an educator, you've learned some things, and you don't think the same way today that you did when you first started the career. Parents do the same thing. You've had expectations. You had thoughts. You had things that you thought were going to take place. And as you grew as a parent, you, they reshaped and you rethought some things. And marriage, same thing. Any area of your life where you are maturing and growing, you're probably changing your mind a lot about some things. It's called growth. I hope you're growing in the right direction. But turn towards God, relying on his love producing mercy, because that's what he called out for. Another thing is that he turned towards God without expecting God to tolerate his sin. He turned to God and did not say, hey, can I keep doing this? 
I'm just going to keep doing this and keep thinking this way, but you're going to keep giving me grace and mercy. No, he didn't expect tolerance from God. He expected cleansing from God. He expected washing from God. That's what he expected. And that's what he asked for because that's where he began to change his mind. But because before the prophet Nathan came to David, David was trying to cover up his sin with more sin. Try to cover up his lies with more lies. Tried to cover up his adultery with murder. Tried to cover up his murder with more lies. And then when the Holy Spirit convicted him through the prophet Nathan, would you wash me? Would you cleanse me? I'm not going to try to hide it anymore. I'm not going to try to tolerate it. I'm not going to try to recreate and manipulate the situation to fit what I've done. But he changed his mind. He also turned towards God by being honest about the obvious reality of your sins. He says, my sin is ever before me. How could it not be with David? Because his whole structure of how he built around himself was built around this lie and around this murder and around everything that was obvious to him and then the death of his son because of his sin. I mean, it was always before him. And so he got honest with God and he admitted the obvious. And I invite you to turn to God the same way. When you say, what do I do then? Turn to God. Rely on His mercy. Ask for cleansing. Be honest about your sin. Another passage of Scripture in this area of that there's mercy for repentance and for change of mind. We notice that when God sent the prophet Jeremiah to proclaim the ability to return to him, he did so on the basis of his merciful character. Now, Jeremiah the prophet was called the weeping prophet because he was always crying over the situation that was before him because Israel was continually rebellious and God kept sending Jeremiah to this rebellious people to call them out for their sin and to reveal, to reveal God's punishment in their life. Can you imagine that your, your call in life was to go to a group of people that were continuously rebellious and continually tell them that they're going to be punished. That was your role in life. You're just going to go throughout life telling, well, hey, guess what? Punishment's coming to you. Wait till you get, it's, it's going to be horrible. And the next person, the punishment for you, punishment for you. That that was, how draining is that? And so continually Jeremiah was broken over this, broken about his role, broken about the people, and his ministry and his life was this weeping session. Became known as the weeping prophet. But when he went to call Israel to repentance, notice in the mix all of this kind of brokenness that his ministry was characteristic of. He, began, he said this in Jeremiah chapter 3. He said this, or God, excuse me, God telling him this. This is what God's speaking to Jeremiah. He said, Go and proclaim these words towards the north. That's the northern part of the city or the, the country. The north saying, return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. I'm angry now, but I'm not going to be angry forever. I'm punishing you now, but I'm going to restore you. I'm not going to punish you forever. Huh. It's not an absence of punishment. It's just not I'm going to punish you forever. You're being punished now, but you have an opportunity to repent. I'm angry now, but this angry, anger will subside, and you'll have an opportunity to 
repent. Verse 13, only acknowledge your guilt that you have rebelled against the Lord your God and have scattered your favors among the foreigners under every green tree, worshiping idols, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master and I will take you from one city and two from a family and I will bring you to Zion. I'll take you back to the promised land. That's what he's promising. He says, you're in captivity now. You're under punishment now. I'm angry with you now. But if you would repent and change your mind and come to me, I will take you back home. I will take you back unto myself and I will take you to the promised land. As you move in a lot of different moving parts and theological issues, but as you move through the Bible in the New Testament, the, the phrase Zion started to be understood as the new and restored heaven and earth, what you and I sometimes say heaven. So it, in this call, this characteristic of God that reached out to the Israelites is reaching out to us in a new way, in a new day, through different voices, and it's saying to us, yes, you're under punishment now, yes, you're, I'm angry now, but if you would return, I'll get you to the promised land. So there's a pathway of mercy. So if you're asking yourself now the same question that they did in the first century, what should I do? And by the way, it's kind of like a daily question for me with God as I look at various things in my life. Well, God, what, what do you want me to do with this? And the majority of time, I have to change a way that I've been thinking. Most of the time, it's I've been thinking wrong when I'm not responding to various things in my life correctly. Maybe when I'm overly frustrated, <laughs> maybe when I'm a bit depressed, maybe when I'm kind of in that mood, because when I get frustrated and I get angry or I get like kind of sideways about some things, I want to withdraw. I want to withdraw from other people. I want to withdraw from my mission and vision of, for life. I want to withdraw from trying to achieve my goals. I simply want to quit and I want to withdraw. And that's not healthy. That's actually quite harmful, <laughs> right? And so usually there's involves something like that. So when I get frustrated about something and I go to God, what do you want me to do about this? I, the answer is not withdraw. That's my normal thinking. That's natural to me, but I need to overcome that and learn to think differently. So what do I do? The challenge for us becomes this. To rely on God's mercy, not your self-perceived better-than-them mentality. Think about that statement for a moment. Think about that. Rely on God's mercy, not your self-perceived better-than-them mentality. Because this is typically what happens when you and I get into a situation that we don't like. We typically want to find someone to blame instead of looking for our own responsibility. And when we look for someone to blame, what we do is we find someone to target and then we elevate ourselves above them and them down here, and we say, well, if they would only shape up, because I'm smarter than them, I'm more in tune to them, I'm more spiritual to the, than them, I know what should be done, and if these people would only get their life in order, then I would have what I want. And that's kind of where we are today. 
with so many political things, so many cultural things, so many relational things, so many racial issues, so many things as we elevate ourselves above, we're the ones that got it all figured out. We look at people that think differently than us and we demonize them or we kind of demean them that they must be stupid. The only way they would vote that way is because they're dumb. The only way that they would, you know, put their money there is because they're stupid. You know, it's, it's we do that with people. And we've watched that kind of play out in majority of our kind of election cycles. You think that because you're corrupt and evil. You think that because you're stupid and dumb. And you could put that on whatever side you want, whatever argument you want, because people tend to do that. If you think like me, you're smart. And the problems that we have is because of other people being stupid. Hmm. Well, let's see what Jesus has to say about that. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 12, he tells this story. He told this parable to some who were trusting in themselves, that they were righteous, and that treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, the highly educated religious leaders. The tax collectors were the traitors. They were Jews working for the Roman government to take money from the Jews, make themselves wealthy, and give money to the Romans. So they were traitors. They were the worst of the worst. So you had the best and the worst, according to their value system, right? The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. Can you imagine? Can you imagine me showing up today, being the pastor? And I start praying, and I say, Lord, I am so glad that I'm not like Wes. What if I did that? Are you serious? What if Pastor Ryan stood up here to give the pastoral prayer that he does? Oh, Lord, I'm glad that you didn't make me like Jim. That's what was going on. In the church. Thank God I'm not like... How many of our prayers are like that as we're watching the news? Thank God I'm not like that. Thank God I'm better than that person. Thank God my perspective isn't as stupid as theirs. Hmm. So that's what he said. And then he goes on. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But this tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but he beat his breast, which is a sign of humility, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So maybe as we gather together as Christian people in our Bible studies, in our worship services, in our fellowship times, Maybe we should just erase this thing of us getting together and saying, well, at least we're not like those people that don't go to church. We're part of this big global thing, this Nazarene church. Well, at least we're not like the Baptist. Well, at least we're not, well, at least we're not. Erase that. And perhaps every time we get together and we're discussing an issue, and I know it sounds silly, but maybe we look at some of the things going on in our world, the economic issues, the racial issues, some of those things. What if Christians 
people that are following Jesus. What about if we looked at our world and we simply said, Lord, have mercy? Mm-hmm.